Well, good morning, church. If you have your Bibles with you, I would invite you this morning to open them to Revelation chapter 7. We'll be in verses 13 through 17. Now, last week marked the 90th anniversary of the Holodomor, which was the intentional starvation of Ukrainians by the Soviet Union during a famine caused by the Soviet Union. The famine came about because all of those who owned land, who were called the uh, Kulaks, they owned land, they were hardworking, they knew how to farm, they were vilified by the state and killed or imprisoned by the hundreds of thousands. Their land then confiscated and redistributed. However, with the Kulaks gone, neither the knowledge nor the will to farm remained, and the ensuring famine led to the starvation of millions in that backward nation. This was only made worse when Moscow, in an act reminiscent of the tyrant Pharaoh, demanded the Ukrainians produce the same quota of food as before only without the expertise and work ethic of the Kulaks. And as a result, even though Ukraine did produce enough food to feed Ukraine, the harvest in its entirety was confiscated by the state and redistributed across the entire country, leaving the Ukrainians in a state of desperate starvation. If you wonder how terrible things became, there were posters up that said, Remember, it is wrong to eat your children. What's worse, this was the second such famine in a decade brought about by the horrific collectivization in the USSR and the policies of socialism and communism. And you say, why do you bring this up? Why begin this morning with such a gruesome picture? It's not for shock. It's because an important reality came to light during this time and one that we don't often think about. See, prevailing in our minds, one thing in our minds is that if something like that were to happen here, we would do the right things. And having done the right things, we would come out on the other side of the famine unscathed. We'd be all right. If we did righteously and acted justly in times of great peril and upheaval, the Lord would preserve our earthly bodies, preserve our families, and we'd be okay. The Lord would keep us, and even though things would be bad, we wouldn't go hungry and no one would die. That simply isn't true. It's not true. Timothy Snyder, a renowned historian commenting on the Holodomor, he wrote that survival was a moral as well as a physical struggle. The good people died first. Those who refused to steal or prostitute themselves died. Those who gave food to others died. Those who refused to eat corpses died. Those who refused to kill their fellow man died. Parents who resisted cannibalism died before their children did. And the point that we have to see is that doing the right thing does not mean everything in this life will turn out in the end. The, the harsh reality, the, the reality that I think people have known throughout all of human history, is that doing the right thing often means getting left behind. 
or getting killed or your family going hungry. It doesn't always play out the way we want it to in the here and now. And when that kind of pressure that you're facing, when the kind of pressure you're facing is basic human needs being denied, it's going to take a lot stronger conviction than, well, that's just the right thing to do, or well, that's what society accepts. It's going to take a lot more than that to keep you on the straight and narrow path. It's not going to hold up when starvation comes knocking. No, the only thing that will enable you to do the right thing and continue to honor the Lord God and obey Him in times of great distress, even at great personal cost, is an even greater conviction of righteousness and of evil and of judgment and of hope in the life to come. We want to focus ourselves not on a good life here, but on a good life in the hereafter. And so we look at Revelation chapter 7, verses 13 through 17. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? And I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God, and they serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits on the throne will shelter them with His presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and He will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Let's pray. Lord, thank You for Your Word. Thank you for the great hope that we have in Christ and in heaven and in the life to come. Oh Lord, I pray that we would be a people who look to eternity and who live for eternity. That, Lord, your word and your ways and your promises would influence and affect every decision that we make while we're here and how we think about how we live while we're here that we would realize that we're citizens of another kingdom and here we are passing through and though we are deeply concerned with the things that happen here, our great concern is your kingdom in its fullness in the life to come. And so Lord, I pray that you would help us to endure faithfully and to live righteously according to your word and according to your will. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Help us, Lord, to hear and to obey. Amen. Well, last week we looked at the first 12 verses of this passage in chapter 7, and there we saw those who were sealed, the 144,000 who represent those who have put their faith in Christ, and they were sealed on the earth, sealed from and for the day of the Lord. And the result of their being sealed on earth was their standing in the presence of God in heaven. And these 12 tribes represent the church of Christ, not ethnic Israel. In fact, James, in James 1 2, he says his letter is for the 12 tribes scattered throughout the land. And when you read the letter, it's clear that he's speaking to the church, to those who have faith, because 
They're the ones who belong to the kingdom of God, and they're the ones who are sealed. They're sealed to secure them, to mark them, and to keep them through trials and tribulations. That's why they're sealed. They're sealed to be kept through them, not from them. And then John sees in this vision a great multitude from all over the world, from all across time, standing before the throne. And as he's witnessing this, one of the elders asks him a question, which begins our passage this morning. Who are these clothed in white? And from where have they come? John says, you know, and the elder answers his question. These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. Now, maybe some of you have been wondering why we haven't talked about a great tribulation so far as we've been working through this book. Or for that matter, maybe you're wondering why the word rapture hasn't come up yet either. Well, now is the time, and the reason is quite simple. Because if you've been following along, you would have noticed that there haven't been any passages that speak even remotely of the church being taken out of the world before this great time of suffering. There hasn't been a single verse about a rapture so far, has there? Go back, read it again, chapters 1 through 7. Nothing there to say the church will be plucked out of the world to be spared great difficulty. And instead what you see are many passages that speak about the church persevering through earthly trials and troubles and enduring earthly trials and troubles and being kept faithfully by the Lord God. And so it's, it's not the one who is raptured away who inherits the promises of God. It is the one who overcomes through these trials and tribulations who inherits the promises of God. And if you're wondering, what does that mean? That Corey doesn't believe in a rapture? Well, the answer is, no, I don't. At least not in a, a left-behind secret rapture prior to a great tribulation. Why? Well, firstly, it's, it's not a doctrine that was ever taught in the church up until about 100 years ago or so. So it's a, it's a new doctrine. Now, that doesn't mean that it's wrong, but it does mean it's not settled or beyond criticism. It's not, as, as some think, the only possible Christian position. No, for most of church history, a vast majority of church history, Christians did not believe in or even acknowledge such a thing as a pre-tribulation rapture. Secondly, there's nowhere in the Bible that teaches this. Nowhere. You have to believe in the rapture already and then take that belief back into Scripture in order to find it. Like in Revelation 4.1. Revelation 4.1, let me read it. It says, After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. Did you know that that's a proof text for the rapture? That's a text that someone would point to. You believe in the rapture. This is one that they would point to and say, see, it's there. The trumpet sounds and all the saints go up to heaven. It's not convincing, is it? You can only say that if you assume the rapture already and then tried to find out, well, where is it here? You know, probably, uh, probably the most quoted passage about the rapture is in 1 Thessalonians 4, for it says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command with the voice of an archangel, 
And with the sound of the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first and then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together. There's the word from which we get the word rapture. Caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Now this is the rapture. And sure enough, the church is rapture, but not in a, in a secret, stealing away kind of way. They're raptured as in what the word means. Caught up to be with the Lord. Caught up into the air to be with Christ. But there's a problem. 1 Thessalonians 4 is talking about the second coming of Christ. And if Christ came to steal away His church secretly, then wouldn't that mean He would have to return twice? Two second comings? One for the church and then another at the very end? Well, this is obviously not what the Bible teaches. Christ will return once for all. That's the clear teaching of Scripture. You know, when I was in uh, Bible college, I went to a school that believed and taught in a pre-tribulation rapture. And do you know how they got around this obvious problem? Because it is an obvious problem. Two second comings. They would say in 1 Thessalonians 4 that Jesus appears in the air. He appears in the sky and then He calls all of His people up to meet Him. But it's not actually the second coming because He doesn't touch down. He just stays in the air and then goes back up to heaven. Folks, that's bad Bible study. It is distorting Scripture to make it fit a preconceived idea about the end times. The Bible teaches that when Christ appears, it is like a trumpet, not secret. It is like lightning in the sky that everyone can see. And after that, it's over. Or Luke. The passage about two women grinding at a mill... Two men walking, two people sleeping, and one is taken and the other one is left. And people hear that in passage and they say, well, there's the rapture. Wrong again. Because after Jesus says those things, one is taking and one is left, in Luke 17, 34, the disciples ask Him, where, Lord? Where have they been taken? And Jesus answers, where the corpse is, the vultures will gather. These people aren't secretly raptured up to heaven. These are people who have been taken out and killed and their bodies left for the birds and the beasts. So all of those passages that teach about a, a supposed pre-tribulation rapture, they're, they're not very compelling. This is why when you read the Scriptures yourself, you have such a hard time finding it because you're looking for something that isn't actually there. It's not a convincing argument from Scripture. And not only are they not compelling, the whole idea goes against what the Bible teaches about Christians and about suffering. Christians are never promised in the Word to be spared from earthly trials, even severe ones. But we are spared on the day of the Lord's wrath. So, so we're not secretly whisked away just before the Great Tribulation. And so now you ask, does that mean that Christians will go through all those terrible things that we see happening in the book of Revelation? The seven-year Tribulation? Well, not only will they, we already are. We already are enduring these things. You see, when, when we read those words, the Great Tribulation, immediately we go back to the Left Behind you know, series, which I'm sure some of you are familiar with, which again is a theology that came about in the late 1800s and it's very new. And, uh, and it's a left-behind series is a, is a depiction of 
Zionistic dispensational futurism, if you want a, a theological term you can tack on there. Zionistic, focused on Israel, dispensationalism. God deals differently with his church now that we're near the end. Uh, futurism, it's all going to happen in the future. And that view interprets the tribulation primarily as a devastating future event, supernatural event, that immediately precedes the return of Christ. And that's the assumption most people make when they think of the word tribulation. Again, they don't often see it when they read their Bibles. They, uh, they hear about it, though, and they see it in, in Christian media, and they're intimidated by charts, and they end up saying, oh, this is esoteric and frightening and much too complicated for me to even attempt to understand, so I'm not even going to try. I'm just going to take it what I hear. Well, we're going to try a, a different and uh, maybe more direct approach because I don't think it's necessarily that difficult to understand. So, so let's put those assumptions aside for a second and ask, what does the Bible specifically say about the Christian's relationship with tribulation? How do they relate to one another? Well, for one, the word itself means uh, affliction or anguish or, or most literally... You wonder, well, if I were to go back in ancient times to, to the time when the Bible was written and say the word tribulation in Greek, what would it be? It's the word thalipsis, and it means literally pressure. Pressure to what? Pressure to compromise. And that's what we've seen so far in the book, haven't we? In the seven churches... There was pressure in Pergamum from the state, pressure to compromise on their commitment to Christ so that they would not be imprisoned or killed. In Thyatira, the pressure was to compromise for the sake of economic preservation. There was pressure brought by, by the world, pressure brought by false and deceptive teachers. And that's what characterizes tribulation, pressure to compromise. This is why, by the way, when you read about great tribulation in the Bible, it's followed by apostasy or great falling away. The great falling away is because there's so much pressure and people leave the church and they compromise on their convictions and they, and they join the world. The pressure is too much. But the way to endure tribulation is by being faithful and not giving in or giving up. And so a great tribulation would be a time of great temptation to compromise. It's a time of affliction that comes upon those who hold fast, but it's not a time of supernatural, cataclysmic phenomena. And as for the timing of it, the Bible makes clear that tribulation is happening now in the present. This is the entire age of the church that's enduring tribulation. You say, yeah, but verse 14 says, the great tribulation, and it is, but it's great in terms of its length more than its intensity. It's a tribulation that is great because it's been going on for thousands of years. It's a tribulation that is great because of, of the, the, the outcome of yielding to the pressure or persevering through the pressure. If you give in to the pressure, the reward for giving in, the consequence, is eternal hell. The reward for persevering is eternal life. It's great tribulation because the cost is so great. And tribulation is what the church has been going through from John's day, and it's what the church is going through now. That pressure to compromise, that pressure to deny Christ for the sake of comfort, that pressure to just give in, if only a little, to the demands around you. And then you and the world can get along just fine. 
Sometimes the pressure is small. Sometimes the pressure is great. Sometimes you can feel that pressure lessening. And sometimes you can feel the pressure building, can't you? Like today, we're, we're moving toward a time of greater pressure. Pressure against the church leaves us feeling constrained or in some cases hemmed in. But we can take comfort knowing that you and I and our generation of believers, well, we have been ordained and called by God to live during a time of increased pressure. It's not random. It comes from Him. And we can take comfort knowing that since God ordained it, He will keep us through it. And we can take comfort knowing that God has kept others faithful through similar tribulation in times past. He's been keeping His people, holding on to them and preserving them for 2,000 years of tribulation and counting. You know, sometimes we think, well, what about the good old days? Well, look, even when things have been really good for the church, they haven't been great. Revivals have come and they've been wonderful times in history, but they've gone just as suddenly. Jonathan Edwards, who led his congregation during the Great Awakening, saw hundreds of thousands of people saved. Thousands of people coming to a knowledge and a fear of the Lord God. But afterward, that same congregation kicked him out. They didn't want him there anymore. Every century has its trouble. And so great tribulation, it's been ongoing since the church began. Now, I believe that things will get more difficult and pressure will increase the nearer we get to the end. Because you see this in, for example, Noah's Ark. What's the story of Noah's Ark about? It's a picture of the final judgment. All of the, all of the world will be against Christ, but there will be a few who are safe in the ark. You see this when Jesus talks specifically about the end. What's he say? People will be marrying and giving in marriage, and it will be like Noah in the days of the ark. It will be like Sodom and Gomorrah. It will be like when the, when the Canaanites were run out of the land. Things got worse and worse and worse, and then judgment came. But God's keeping His people through it all. And what they face later on, what we would face in the end, is not going to be that much different from what we face now and what the church has faced in the past. In fact, John, in Revelation 1.9, he affirms this. He says that he is our brother and partner, present tense, in the tribulation. You can look it up if you want. Revelation 1.9, John lets us know that the tribulation has begun and he is our brother and our partner in it. And it shouldn't come as any surprise to Christians. We are told repeatedly in Scripture that being a Christian means suffering. Being a Christian in a fallen world means persecution and tribulation and pressure and threatening. That's just what it means to be a Christian. You know, one of the reasons I think... Uh, the idea of a rapture has been so popular is because it teaches that the church will avoid suffering. And it feeds into a kind of almost a prosperity gospel light. Right? So there's the acknowledgement that, yes, the church will face certain difficulties, and we know that the point of Christianity, it's not health and it's not wealth. But when things get really bad, we won't be here. The Lord would never let us endure something like wars and famines and the like. No, he'll let other Christians suffer it, like he has in the past, but not North American Baptists. <laughs> this goes against the whole tenet and teaching of Scripture on Christian suffering and Christians in tribulation. It's against Scripture and it's against history. 
You know, in John 16, 33, Jesus says, I have said these things to you that in me you might have peace. In the world you will have trouble or tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So in this world, how does Jesus say oh, Christians should look at this world and the life that we have here? A time of tribulation. In Acts 14, 21, Paul is teaching the Ephesian elders and he tells them that it is through many tribulations they will enter the kingdom of God. Romans 8, 38 and 36, who shall separate us from the love of God? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Do you ever think of yourself in that way as a Christian? What am I? I am a sheep to be slaughtered. Will that separate you from the love of God in Christ? Verse 37, no. In all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. Important word there, two letters, in these things. In tribulation and in famine and in being slaughtered like sheep. In them, not in spite of them. We go through them. We endure them. But they cannot separate us from God or His love. 2 Timothy 3.12, indeed, all who des desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. You want to give a godly life? It's coming your way. Philippians 1.29, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake. It's been granted to you. If you're a Christian, trials and suffering, they're not random. They're not always the devil bothering you. Do you know where they come from? It has been granted to you, given by God. Times of affliction. And the, we could go on and on and on and on. Romans, Romans 5.3, James 1.2, 1, 1 Peter 4.13, Acts chapter 4, Psalm 119.71, uh, Matthew, Matthew 5.10, all of Matthew chapter 10, Habakkuk chapter 3. It's all over the place. Christians will endure tribulation. And it shouldn't come as a surprise. If we're following in the footsteps of Jesus, if we're walking where Jesus walked, we will endure what He endured. And if we go down the same path as Christ, we're going to end up in the same destination as Christ. And where did His path lead Him? He was called the man of constant sorrow. He went through abandonment. His countrymen wanted to stone him to death. He, he did good to them and they despised him. They hated him for calling their sin, sin. And in the end, they crucified him. I mean, Christ, while he was here, this was his time of trial and torment. It's the same for us. This life is our time of trial and of torment. This life is where we press on and endure pressure. It's not something the Lord sweeps His people away from at the last moment. He never promises to prevent our earthly troubles. He promises to preserve us and carry us victorious to the other side. And these sufferings in this present age purify us and prepare us for eternity. But if we're following in Christ's footsteps, in His humiliation... If we're walking the, the Via Dolorosa, the path of tears, 
Guess what? We also get to follow him in his exaltation. And when his earthly life was done, what happened? Resurrection ascension and he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high where he will reign forever and ever and we will be resurrected and ascend and join Christ on that throne revelation 3:21 this the life to come in heaven and in eternity that's where the glory is and everything that comes afterward is glorious you know, there's no regression. There's not going to be any more highs and lows. It's only ever onward and upward for those who were faithful and persevered in Christ. And that is verses 15 through 17. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits on the throne will shelter them with His presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more, the sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and He will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This is a glorious passage, isn't it? This is a, a collection of so many promises that God made to His people. And here we see them fulfilled in this vision. John sees the church. He sees the, the people of God, all of them in this blessed condition with all the promises fulfilled. And if you look closely at this vision, if you could see it and look at this great multitude, do you know who you would see? You'd see David. There'd be Moses and Noah there. Samson and Solomon and Simon of Cyrene. And you would see Paul and Polycarp and Augustine and the early church fathers. And you look, you'd see Calvin and Luther and Knox, Whitfield and Wesley, Spurgeon and Moody. You'd find the face of Billy Graham in this great number and R.C. Sproul. And if you looked hard enough, and if you looked long enough, you'd even see your own face there, joining the praises of this great multitude, worshiping the saints throughout the ages. And you would realize, once and for all, that every drop of sweat, every anguished cry, every sleepless night, and every groaning in prayer, and every sacrifice and sorrow, all of it, all of it cannot compare to one moment in this place of glory. Lord, give us a faith to believe it today so that we can say with the apostle, I do not count the sufferings of this present time worthy to compare to the glory that will be revealed to us. Every promise fulfilled. I mean, the beatific vision. The vision of God from Numbers 6, 24 and 25. The Lord make His face to shine upon you. You'll have it here. And you'll see what Moses longed to see. The, the face of God. And you'll be there rejoicing with Him. You'll serve the Lord day and night. Just like what was promised in Exodus 19 and 1 Peter 2. will be a kingdom of priests. People with access to the one seated on the throne and to the Lamb. And you'll serve in His temple. Have you ever stopped to think about what it means to serve God in His temple now? We'll see it fulfilled then, but we participate in it today. This is not going to change in the future. It's just going to expand, and we're going to see it more clearly. Right now, where is the temple? 
Anybody know? It's not in Jerusalem. That one's long gone. And listen, it is never going to be rebuilt. Never. And they will never offer sacrifices there again. There has been one sacrifice once and for all. And to rebuild that temple and to reinstitute the sacrificial system is not only wrong, it is a blasphemy, if, if the book of Hebrews is correct, it is a blasphemy and profanes and mocks the finished work of Christ. Not ceremonially remembers it. We have a ceremony to remember it in the Lord's Supper. The reinstituting of the sacrificial system is a mockery and a profaning of the finished sacrifice of Christ. Now the only sacrifices in the temple that the New Testament recognizes is a memorial in the Lord's Supper and the living sacrifices of the faithful people of God. The temple is not and never was a location. Oh, well, sure, it had a location. But what made it the temple? The presence of God made it the temple. Because the temple is wherever the Lord is. Right now, He is in you. And He is in the church. In the new heavens and the new earth, He will be everywhere. Just like in the creation in the garden. And the whole universe will be the temple of God and we will serve Him day and night wherever we go. But it's not just then. You do that now by loving one another sacrificially, by obeying faithfully, and by praying and interceding and praising and proclaiming. That's how you serve the Lord in the temple today. And it will be fulfilled and magnified then. Next in this passage, there is the fulfillment of Isaiah 4, 5, and 6 and Isaiah 49, 10. Then the Lord will create over the whole site of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day and smoke in the shining of a flaming fire by night. For over all the glory there will be a canopy. There will be a booth for shade by day from the heat and for a refuge and a shelter from the storm and rain. Isaiah 49.10 They shall not hunger or thirst, neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them. For he who has pity on them will lead them, and by springs of water he will guide them. God will be our shelter forever. He shelters us with His presence, and you'll never hunger or thirst again. Have you ever been hungry? I mean really hungry. Or thirsty? Or oppressed by the heat of the sun? You're not going to be there. All your basic needs will be met forever and ever without any anxious fear of loss. Psalm 23 is fulfilled. The Lord is our shepherd. He guides us now. Then He'll guide us more fully. Isaiah 25, He has swallowed up death forever and the Lord will wipe away every tear from our faces. No sickness, no death. The Lord Himself will wipe away every tear. Have you ever had someone wipe away your tears? Most of us probably haven't. Not, not since we were children. Not in a time that we can remember. But there is something comforting about it, isn't there? Children know this. Right? When their tears are wiped away, they don't have anything to cry about anymore. Mom's here. Dad's here. That's what the parent says, isn't it? And that's what the child knows. Don't have to worry. I'm safe in the presence of my Father. In heaven, God says you won't have anything to cry about anymore. 
because I am here. That's the destiny for all of those who walk with Christ and believe on Him. Freedom from a fearful world and a great and unshakable hope in the future. And now, seeing all of these things gloriously fulfilled, I just want to take some time to realign our thoughts before we go any further. Because a temptation that creeps up when we consider these things is that they're all about us. Right? When we read a passage like Revelation 7, 15-17, we can really start to think about ourselves and, and how good we'll have it and how our pain will stop and how comfortable we'll be, especially compared to today. And, and all of that is true. And I want to take away from that. There is no pain. There is no comfort. There are no needs unmet. But the danger, the, the joy-destroying danger, the, the danger that, that can remove you out of, out of blessedness and make it very hard to endure is when we divorce these things from the one who provides that comfort. And we start to think it's all about us and forget that it's all about Christ. And we become like children on Christmas morning who shoulder their parents out of the way so they can get to the gifts under the tree. It's what can happen when we start to think about eternity. It's about me and how blessed I'll be. And you will be blessed. But listen, heaven is not a blessing because you or I or anybody else won't have any trials or tribulation there. Heaven is heaven. And heaven is a blessing because God and the one who sits upon the throne and the Lamb are there. This entire seal, this sixth seal, and remember, we're still in it. It's not about our vindication and our comfort in eternity. It's about His vindication and His enthronement being our comfort in all of eternity. And we are happy and we are blessed primarily not because difficulty is over, but the reason why we're happy and blessed forever is because the glory and majesty of Christ, our beloved, is exalted and displayed supremely. And this is, ties the whole sixth seal together, doesn't it? It began in chapter 6, verse 12, with judgment. The rejoicing of verses 5 through 17 is connected to the terror of verses 12 through 17 of chapter 6. You say, what's the connection? It is all to God and to the Lamb. The glory in heaven is found not in the praise, not in the perfection, not in the people or the provision, but on the throne. He is the focus of it all. What do the wicked cry out? Hide us from the face of Him seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. What's the horror of the great judgment in chapter 6? The one seated on the throne and the Lamb. What is the glory of heaven? It is the one seated on the throne and the Lamb. What are the people in chapter 6 terrified of? The one seated on the throne and the Lamb. Who is it that removes all of our terror forever? The one seated on the throne and the Lamb. Who is the one who is bringing this just judgment that sins deserve? The one who is seated on the throne and the Lamb. And who takes away the sin and brings salvation and atonement to the sealed in chapter 7? The one seated on the throne and the Lamb. Who are the condemned dreading to see and asking for the mountains to fall on them, to hide them from? 
the one seated on the throne and the Lamb. And who is it we cannot see enough of in chapter 7? The one seated on the throne and the Lamb. We are before His throne. We serve Him day and night. The one seated on the throne and the Lamb shields us. How? He shields us with His presence. We are not safe, you understand, because heaven has high walls and an army of angels. We are secure because He is there. And who would dare come to take us away from Him? Parents, again, you, you might understand this to a degree. Because you might be weak and frail, but the one thing that will draw every ounce of courage and, and fearlessness out of you, that would make you fight a lion or a hurricane or an entire army, is when your children are in danger. It doesn't matter how strong the enemy is. It doesn't matter how terrifying. It doesn't matter how impossible it is for you to overcome. In that situation, none of those things even cross your mind. You know what you're thinking about? My child is in danger. I must act. And if you, frail and weak and evil, would so quickly come to the defense of your children so that when they're afraid, they know that no matter what they can do, they can run to you. How much more a good heavenly Father who is all-powerful, not afraid of anything, and can never lose. Oh, that's why we are secure in heaven. It's all because of Him. All of our affliction is over. Nobody dies of famine again because He is our provision. No one succumbs to the elements anymore who has need of anything. Have you ever been in need? You won't be there. You know why? Not because of the abundance of eternity. Not because of the surplus of the crops and the bounty of it all and the cleanness of the water and the, the health of the people. It will be like that, but that's not why you'll never lack again or be sick again. The reason you'll never have lack or sickness the reason you'll never go hungry is because you'll have the same food Jesus did when He told His disciples, I have food to eat you know not of. The one who sits upon the throne and the Lamb will be your portion, your bread of life, your living water and your shelter and your rest for all of eternity. And there'll be no grief, only joy. But it isn't because everything is always so great. It is so great. But why is there no grief? Well, do you know what grief is? All grief. You fear that you have lost something you cannot live without. And you're disappointed. There, there's a place in you that will never be filled again. Or you're afraid that people will think of you in ways you don't want them to think. And you will lose their approval, even if only a little bit. And it has a, a paralyzing effect, doesn't it? These things rob you of so much joy and so much contentment and so much peace and even patience. But listen, if you're in the presence of Him who sits upon the throne and the Lamb, what can you lose? What do you have to long for and what do you have to feel sorry for then? When, when you're there in His presence, you're not going to be worrying about how badly people thought of you because you'll finally realize it wasn't bad enough. That's okay, because the Lamb has made you clean and you're clothed in righteousness. You're not going to be trusting in yourself anymore, which leads to nothing but disappointment and the fear of man. Now, you and I, 
we're nothing. You're nothing. If you think you're something, when you're nothing, you deceive yourself. Galatians 6.3 But Christ is everything. And He always will be. And heaven will be heaven only because of Him. That's the glory of heaven. It's Christ. Let me give you two points of application here in closing. One, heaven is not about a new location. It's not about being taken off of this earth and being put there. Heaven is about the realization of a relationship. It's a continuation and a fulfillment of what has been begun here. That's heaven. That's eternity. It's not so much something new as it is something accomplished. But he who began a good work will finish it. Therefore, it is absurd to think that people who have no relationship with the Lord now, who do not love the Lord their God now, and do not love His people now, will find themselves in that heavenly place then. This is why it's so important to see what heaven is all about. It's all about Him. And if you don't have Him today, you won't have Him then. I mean, so many people think of it as just the release of pain and suffering. Or it's, it's just where you go when you die. It's not a better place that's separated from this world by an ethereal divide. It's, it's, not like, uh, it's not like Valhalla or Elysium or all of those other places where the ancients thought you would go. The only reason there is anything good in heaven and the new earth and the earth to come is because of Him who is seated on the throne in the Lamb. Brody Bauckham says on this, he says, if you don't have that, you miss the glory of heaven. And if you miss the glory of heaven, you'll miss the nature of heaven. And if you miss the nature of heaven and you don't know what it's about, then guess what? You don't know who belongs there. Because if you don't find anything good in Him today, you won't find anything good in Him then. Heaven is heaven. For that matter, hell is hell. Because God is there. And what matters is your relationship with Him today. And so if you call yourself a Christian but find no pleasure in Christ, no joy among His people, He doesn't shepherd and lead you today, then you will find no pleasure or joy or shepherding in heaven because you won't be going there. It's a fulfillment of a relationship. And if you don't have that relationship now, there'll be nothing to be fulfilled. Eternal life is for those who know God and love God and the Christ whom He has sent, John 17, 3. And two, second application, maybe wonder or have been wondering why I began this morning the way I did with the uh, tragic suffering of the early 19th, 20th century in Ukraine. The reason I began that way was because so often in this life, doing the right thing will cause suffering. It will. And Christ is our great example of this, isn't He? He never sinned. He never did anything wrong. He never wronged anybody. And they seethed with hatred towards Him. And they cheered at His torture. And they cheered at His trial. And they cheered at His crucifixion. He always did good and was treated by hateful people as the scum of the earth fit only to be slaughtered. Sometimes that is where doing the right thing leads you. 1 Peter 3, it is better to suffer for doing good if that is God's will 
better to suffer for doing good. And the church and the Christians, they will not be thanked when they do what is right and righteous. Sometimes doing what is right and righteous will cause them to suffer and die. That's the reward of the righteous in this life. Our hope in this life is the fullness of the life to come. But don't think that that's just God being arbitrary. Isaiah 57, you know what it says? There was a problem in Isaiah 57. Righteous people in, in the nation were dying. And so people were saying, well, what's the point of living righteously if they're just dying off? And the Lord answers and says, has anyone considered or anyone taken it to heart? Do you not understand that I have removed the righteous from the land to spare them from the difficulties that I'm going to bring on you? Sometimes the Lord does spare His people from difficulty by their death in this life. Sometimes He takes His people out to spare them of the pain to come. Not by rapturing them away. Have you ever read in the, in the uh, Old Testament about Josiah, the most righteous king that ever lived, and you wonder, why did he die at 37 in battle? That doesn't make sense. It makes perfect sense. The Lord was sparing him from the tumult of the Babylonian captivity and the destruction of the city. The Lord took him away from that. Don't think it went poorly for Josiah. Josiah closed his eyes in death and opened them gloriously in heaven. He didn't look at it as loss, and neither should we. Until we realize this, that our hope comes then, that it's after death that we can rejoice, then we're going to be prone to disappointment and disillusion here in the Christian life. Until we realize that, until we realize that, we will be looking for the blessings of verses 15 through 17 today. We'll be looking for them now, and we won't find them. We'll end up looking for things that characterize the life to come today. When that happens, you'll end up grieving and mourning and hurt, and you'll want to shake your fist at God, saying, I'm a Christian, and I've suffered great loss and great pain. What's going on? When you stand before His throne forever, from that day onward, it will be reasonable to expect to have no pain and no sickness and no grief ever again. But until that day, if you find yourself angry at God, angry even over suffering and loss and pain right now, the reason why you are so frustrated is because you are demanding today what God has promised for tomorrow. And He isn't going to give those things in the here and now. But at the appropriate time, after we have suffered a little while, He will pour them out in an abundance so greatly that every sorrow will be forgotten forever and our happiness will never be threatened again. Here, loss, heartache, pain, deprivation, and they're all yours. And that sometimes it leaves you wondering, well then what's the point? The point is this. If you trust Christ, and you love Christ, and you believe on Christ, all of those things are temporary. The world doesn't have that hope, does it? It goes through the same trials and tribulations here, and then after it's worse. All of those things are temporary for the believer. 
and all of those things you endure today, they won't seem like much to have endured after a hundred billion years of glory. You're going to stand with the Lamb in that place where sorrow and disappointment and sin is no more. And the same shepherd who waits for us in that place guides us and walks with us in this one. He who will be our final and absolute comfort, he will be our comfort and our hope today. He who has sealed us will see us through our tribulation, not around it, but through the midst of it, and he will take us safely to the other side. You can be sure of that, Christian. We have a lot to look forward to. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the hope that you provide. Thank you, Lord, that when we look ahead, oh Lord, through a small valley, a mud puddle in eternity, there is glory on the other side. Lord, we look forward to going to be with you. And we look forward, Lord, to the resurrection. Who knows what the new heaven and the new earth will be like. Lord, you know. But Lord, you have given us snippets and glimpses of it now. Lord, how glorious it will be. Thank you, Father. Thank you that you haven't left us without hope. Lord, we live in a world that is hopeless, but we ourselves are not. And I pray, Lord, that Lord, as the teacher said, that you would stamp eternity on our eyeballs and that we would view the world around us through the lens of eternity and that we would live, Lord, knowing there is a judgment coming, that we would live knowing that this is not our home, that we would live preparing for the life to come and the new heaven and the new earth, Lord, that you will bring. And fixing our eyes there, we would find... Nothing in this life, however great, is too great to endure. Lord, truly help us to believe that none of it can compare to the glory that awaits us and will be revealed to us in Christ. It's in your name we pray, and in you alone we hope. Amen.